Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, here's Tony. Welcome back to episode 36 of the Michigan Constitution Podcast. This time, I want to talk about Article 1, Section 14 of the Michigan Constitution. The right to a jury trial is protected both by our United States Constitution as well as our Michigan Constitution. But why is the right to a jury trial so important? Why is it imperative we protect that right both at the federal level as well as the state level? Well, there are a few reasons. First, it prevents tyranny. The idea here is to ensure that the government is checked by the people. The government leaves it to the peers of the criminal defendant in criminal cases and to the peers of the parties in a civil case. In a civil case, you have a jury who can decide who is at fault in the car accident or whether someone trespassed onto the property of another. They get to decide if a contract was breached by either party in a contractual dispute. Look, you get the idea. But second, it's how we the people are involved in the judicial branch. Look, when you're dealing with the legislature or the executive branch, you can call and ask for a specific outcome on legislation or a particular action to be taken by an elected official. But in the judicial branch, not only shouldn't you lobby a judge, you can't. So how does John Q. Public influence the judicial branch? They get to decide guilt or innocence, liability versus no responsibility. Did you know that the United States is one of very, very few countries which allows for a jury trial? Most trials are decided exclusively by a judge. So the right to a jury trial is absolutely critical for a successful democracy. Over the next two podcasts, we're going to look at exactly what the right of a jury trial looks like, what it means, and how we protect that right through Article 1, Section 14 of the Michigan Constitution. But first, your spoonful of legalese. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what the podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law, I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well become outdated by the time I post this podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal needs. Our first two cases are pre-1963 Michigan Constitution, but they lay such an important foundational groundwork for this right that I just can't skip over them. Now, I know, I know at this point you probably are tired of hearing it, but I think it bears repeating. 
I don't like reviewing cases which predate our current 1963 Michigan Constitution. But when cases act as a proverbial launching pad for post-1963 case law, I feel a bit better about highlighting them on the podcast. So let's talk about People v. Big, a Michigan Supreme Court case from 1941. The importance of this case is to establish how strongly we cherish not just the right to a trial by a jury, but by an impartial jury. And when that impartiality is threatened, particularly by a judge, the courts are going to step in to rectify the problem. So what happened? It was a criminal case against Defendant Big, which went through the traditional stages of a trial that we all understand from television. There were opening and closing arguments, witnesses examined and cross-examined, but it was the comments by the judge to the jury as he was giving the jurors their instructions where the wheels of justice came off the bus. The judge opined to the jurors with comments like, there is a piece of evidence here in writing that I haven't been able to explain away so I could feel that the defendant was innocent of this crime. I am convinced that the defendant in this case, gentlemen of the jury, is guilty of the crimes as charged. I am stating to you, trying to do it honestly, my impression, my opinion, if you please. Now, to the judge's credit, he did make a brief statement to the jury that they, the jurors, had a duty to perform, which is not a duty the judge has, which was to determine whether or not the defendant was guilty. That their judgment must be independent of any opinion, and that the jurors were the ones to decide whether the defendant was guilty. But those last few comments by the judge regarding his opinion in the case, plus the role of the jury to find guilt or innocence, was not enough of an exculpatory statement to undo the harm the judge caused by giving his opinion on the defendant's guilt. The Michigan Supreme Court noted that the Michigan Constitution grants the right to a trial by a jury in every criminal prosecution. But what is the specific right that's being granted, the Supremes hypothetically opined? They started by saying that the right we have under Article 1, Section 14 is what existed before that right was put into the Michigan Constitution. The problem is, that right is not specifically described in Article 1, Section 14. Something well known and understood under its particular name, trial by jury. And they note that there is an implication that a waiver of the right is forbidden. So if the accused himself cannot waive the right, plainly, the legislature cannot take that right away. Okay, okay, that's a lot of legalese, which incidentally doesn't address what the judge himself had done. But that idea that the Michigan legislature not being able to pass laws which take away a person's right to a jury trial is going to be used in post-1963 case law, hence the reason I'm highlighting this case. But most importantly, the Michigan Supreme Court makes the following statement. They say, The right of trial by jury is too firmly established in American jurisprudence to allow it to be whittled away by the legislature or by a too liberal construction of statute law by the courts. Once the door is open for allowing the opinion of the court to be impressed upon jurors that one charged with a crime is guilty of the offense, the fundamental right of trial by jury is impaired. This court has said that the trial judge should not express an opinion as to what he thinks of the verdict should be, nor how he thinks the jury should decide the case. Wow, that's powerful. Never shall the legislature whittle away the right to trial, 
nor shall a liberal judge be allowed to usurp the role of an impartial jury. It was for that reason that the Michigan Supreme Court overturned the defendant's conviction and a new trial ordered for defendant Big in his case. Uh, By the way, just a quick side note, the court opinion was signed on by all seven Michigan Supreme Court justices. I find that important as not one justice found fault with the provision we've highlighted regarding the importance of an impartial jury. Our next pre-1963 Michigan Constitution was State Conservation Department v. Brown, another Michigan Supreme Court case, this time from 1952. And this case involves another 7-0 decision by the Michigan Supreme Court. But this time, the justices uphold the refusal to grant the defendant a jury trial. Here, the Michigan Department of State Conservation, now known in 2021 as the Department of Natural Resources, filed a complaint alleging that a certain fish net greater than a value of $300 had been set and illegally used in Lake Huron. In particular, officers of the Department of State Conservation were out patrolling the waters of Lake Huron. During one of the patrols, they came across the defendant's net, which was set up approximately 10 miles from shore and went down about 80 feet into the water. The request by the Department of State Conservation was to have the net not only forbidden for use, but to be legally confiscated. The defendant subsequently demanded a jury trial on this matter, but was denied by the court. Defendant at trial refuted the department's allegation it was an illegal use of a net and, moreover, never admitted it was used for any illegal purposes. Ultimately, that $300 net, which in 2021 monies would have been valued at approximately $3,000 when adjusted for inflation, was indeed condemned and confiscated by the court. The law the Conservation Department was relying upon was a statute which prohibited the use of this type of net at that particular depth into the waters. For the record, but irrelevant to the case, is that the Michigan Supreme Court aptly points out that there was no illegal search of this net by the conservation officer. The justices first start out by giving a bit of a history lesson on the right to a jury trial. They note the importance to the right of a jury trial as it was known and understood before it was memorialized in the 1908 Michigan Constitution. And remember, folks, this case is from 1952, and we're still 11 years away from the next Michigan Constitution. But regardless, this right from the 1908 Constitution to the 1963 Constitution remains the same. So the Supremes have to determine exactly what right to a jury trial was granted to the parties prior to the adoption of the 1908 Constitution. The right to a trial by jury in cases where it existed prior to the adoption of the Constitution may not be defeated by enactment of a statute. So, said another way, if prior to 1908 a jury could hear a particular case, then after 1908 they can still hear that type of case. The Michigan legislature may not pass a law which takes that right away. But what the Michigan Supremes had to tackle here was is this proceeding brought by the Department of Conservation the type of case which would allow for a jury trial before the adoption of the 1908 Michigan Constitution? It was the State Conservation Department stance that these proceedings are equitable in nature, since it was an abatement of a nuisance 
and that in such cases, juries were not used, even before the 1908 Constitution. But not so fast, says the court. When they review the statute being relied upon by the State Department, the court says no language was included in the statute making it clear that no jury trial should be afforded under the law. With that, the defendants pop up to not only agree with the court, but to point out the use of the net falls under either admiralty law, since it was in the water of Lake Huron and therefore should be decided by the federal courts, or if the Michigan Supreme Court believes the state of Michigan court system should have jurisdiction over this case, then the court should view the use of the nets in the lake as something which was allowed at common law, and that would provide for a jury trial. But again, not so, said the justices. They point out the difficulty of the defendant's argument is that if it is believed that the action is one of common law, it's not a given that a right to a jury would be allowed under this fact pattern nor cause of action. To resolve the matter, the Michigan Supreme Court rules that this law created by the legislature was not known or dealt with under common law. To the contrary, they believed it was a new cause of action created by the Michigan legislature after the ratification of the 1908 Michigan Constitution. Look, the Michigan legislature creates new rights for the people of our state all the time. New rights because of new science, new technology, or new medicine, which were not yet discovered when the Constitution was written. Therefore, if a new cause of action is created because of a new set of circumstances, it is up to the Michigan legislature to determine if that right is going to be given a right to a jury trial. Ultimately, the court was not persuaded this particular condemnation and confiscation statute was known at common law. Therefore, they did not believe the right to a jury was applicable to this specific law. This case is going to be one of a few we highlight whereby the courts must look to whether the criminal charge or civil allegations was one which existed before the ratification of the Michigan Constitution. If it was a crime or civil right before the Michigan Constitution, then a jury trial will be afforded to the parties. Next case, Peasley versus Lapeer County Circuit Court, a Michigan Supreme Court case from 1964. And finally, we're getting into case law, which comes after we've ratified a new 1963 Michigan Constitution. Fortunately, for this particular case review, we don't have to spend too much time on it, but there were a few important milestones to come from this case, so I couldn't completely skip over it. Here's the quick and dirty on the fact pattern. A judge decided he was going to separate the liability piece of an automobile accident lawsuit away from the damages portion of that lawsuit. Essentially, the judge said to the parties, I'm going to decide whether the defendant was liable for the car accident which was brought forth in this lawsuit. But if I do determine that the defendant is indeed responsible for the car accident, only then will the jury be involved. Specifically, they get to determine how much money the defendant has to pay to the plaintiff. So the jury will sit in on this trial, but they don't actually get to decide if the defendant was responsible for the car accident. The judge will get to determine that piece. However, again, I'll reiterate to make sure I'm clear on my explanation. If the judge does determine that the defendant was responsible for the car accident, then the jury will determine how much money the defendant will pay to the injured plaintiff bringing the lawsuit. And 
that's the fact pattern here. <laughs> but whoa, 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 says the plaintiff in this case. The plaintiff points out that a right to a jury trial was known under common law and that the separation of the liability away from the damages was not allowed under common law. The plaintiff says breaking those two issues apart, the liability away from the damages to be awarded, constitutes a substantial change in the character of a jury trial as known to common law, which neither the court nor the legislature is constitutionally allowed to do. Maybe said another way. The plaintiff is arguing he has a constitutionally protected right to submit to a jury all his proof on all the facts in this case. And regardless how complex the fact pattern and legal liability might be, the jury is allowed to deliberate upon and decide any issue as one big ball of wax. But the justices point out that this exact argument was rejected by the United States Supreme Court when a similar case came before the highest court in our country via the United States Constitution's Seventh Amendment guarantee of a jury trial. Our Supreme Court quotes the United States Supreme Court, who said, The significant element of substance in the right to trial by jury is the right to jury determination of facts and that the form of such determination was not of vital significance. This constitutional guarantee does not prohibit the introduction of new methods for ascertainment of fact. Essentially, what the court is saying here is, yes, we agree, traditionally verdicts require jury deliberation and a decision made after all factual proofs have been submitted. But in this case, the trial judge's action deviated from this traditional practice only to the extent that the jury was called upon to perform a part of its function, specifically determining the amount of damages the plaintiff will receive from defendant. Although the Michigan Supreme Court agrees with the plaintiff that this was a highly unorthodox action by the judge, the judge's action did not reach such a magnitude as to violate the Michigan Constitution's right to a jury trial. Next up, the case Ritchie v. Masinkiewicz a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1966. Again, this is a short case review, but it comes with some important points to the right of a jury trial. First, let's talk about the fact pattern because it's an unusual one to say the least. The civil lawsuit, and remember, civil means money, not crime or jail time, was brought by the widow of her dead husband, Mr. Leo Ritchie. Widow Ritchie brought this lawsuit alleging that because her husband had been falsely imprisoned and had a malicious prosecution brought against him, the stress of it all caused Mr. Leo Ritchie to have a heart attack and die. I sure wish there would have been more of a fact pattern put forth in this opinion because I would have loved to have known more about the criminal charges Mr. Ritchie had faced and how the case was resolved. I don't know whether the case was dismissed or if it went to trial but he was found innocent. Ultimately, none of that is actually relevant to the case, but man, I did love the reasoning that the widow came up with for her to sue the defendant. But also, who is the defendant? Was it the prosecutor who brought the criminal charges? Was it the police officer who arrested her husband? Or, or was it the, the, the alleged victim in the alleged uh, criminal case? Obviously, again, not relevant, but something that I had wondered about. So I'll move on. During the pretrial stages of this lawsuit, no written demand for a jury trial was ever made, nor any jury fee paid pursuant to a request for a jury trial. 
However, during a pretrial conference, the judge did ask if this was a jury case, and the widow's attorney replied in the affirmative to the judge that indeed it was. Therefore, the judge set the trial to be placed on a jury calendar for the next available date. Come trial day, the judge notes that no written request for a jury nor jury fee was ever paid by the plaintiff. For that reason, the judge denied the widow plaintiff a jury and the widow appealed the judge's decision. The issue this court of appeals had to wrestle with was how do you handle a matter where a plaintiff verbally requests the judge for a jury trial, the judge complies with that request and even sets the trial up for a date which works on a particular day a jury will be available for a trial, but the plaintiff never actually submits the written request or pays the required fee. Our Michigan Court of Appeals determined that under this specific fact pattern, you must deem the request for a trial by jury to be waived. They point out the error in the pretrial statement was caused by the plaintiff's attorney. The court noted it was the attorney who answered the judge's question, is this a jury trial, in the affirmative. It was that answer which caused the judge to say the pretrial portion of the lawsuit was closed, the case was to be set for trial, and to be placed on the jury's calendar as soon as possible. So the Court of Appeals determined the plaintiff's attorney can't now allege he was misled or prejudiced by his own pretrial statement. To the contrary, the appellate judges note, the failure to demand a jury trial and to pay the jury fee for a civil case constitutes a waiver of the right to a trial by jury. The court points out that it is at the discretion of a trial court judge to subsequently allow for a jury trial after the close of a pretrial conference when a failure to follow the court rules has occurred. If the judge wishes to provide that benefit to a party seeking a jury trial, it will only be at the discretion of the judge. The takeaway to this court cases before the pretrial stage ends in a civil trial, make sure to submit a written demand for a jury and pay that jury fee. Because once the pretrial stage closes, it will be at the discretion of the judge whether to allow a civil case to proceed with a jury. Now, before you get too excited, Irish whiskey drinkers, calm down. It's a different spelling. Our next case, Jameson versus Lloyd, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1974, addresses whether the lawsuit at hand should have been presented to a jury or whether it was to have been a bench trial. The fact pattern is nothing more than an alleged breach of contract between a homeowner and a mason worker who had performed work on two houses owned by the homeowner Jameson. But the issue at hand involved amending the trial from a bench trial over to a jury trial. At pretrial, this case was slated to be held before the judge to determine, and that only a handful of witnesses were to be called. However, at some point, the trial judge amended his decision when granting the plaintiff's motion for a jury trial. With that change, the judge was permitting both the plaintiff and the defendant to call whomever they believed relevant and necessary as witnesses to support their legal claims. The defendant argues to this slate of Michigan Court of Appeals judges that the submission of the case to a jury 
adversely affected the preparation and presentation of his case. But the court didn't buy it. They said that a pretrial conference is conducted before trial in order to simplify and to narrow the issues of the case and to avoid any traps or surprises. But they note the ability to modify a pretrial summary either at or before trial to prevent an injustice is something which is within the discretion of a trial judge. This court even harkens back to our aforementioned case of Ritchie versus Masinkowitz and reiterates it is within the discretion of the judge to allow for a bench trial to be converted to a jury trial if that will ensure justice to the two parties. What is interesting is that the Court of Appeals found that while there was never a written demand for a jury trial, the jury fee was paid by the plaintiff. More importantly, the defense attorney was present at the pretrial conference when the jury fee was paid. The Court of Appeals judges believed the defense attorney was put on notice that the plaintiff expected the case to be tried before a jury, and they did not believe the defense attorney should have been surprised nor was the defense attorney prejudiced by the trial judge's decision to impanel a jury. For those reasons, the Michigan Court of Appeals did not find this to be an abuse of discretion by the trial court judge and affirmed the jury's verdict in favor of the plaintiff. That's going to do it for episode number 36 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. Please reach out to me at TonySnyder.com or I'm on Twitter. I'm at Tony Snyder. We'll talk to you next time. The Michigan Constitution podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 